Welcome to the OIS Podcast, where you get candid conversations with the leaders and drivers of ophthalmic innovation. And now, here's our host, Tom Salemi. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the OIS Podcast. It's, uh, it's been a little bit since we've last talked. We apologize for the break, but uh, we had some, uh, some pressing issues and assignments at J.P. Morgan to deal with. We also uh, had some work to do uh, on our website. I'm happy to say it is up and running. Go to ois.net. You'll find all of our past podcasts there. You'll, of course, be able to register for OIS at ASCRS on May 5th in New Orleans. And you can listen to future podcasts as well. We're back up with our weekly cycle. And uh, we're starting today with a story of a leadership change. Leadership changes obviously have uh, been going on uh, in the sector the last couple of weeks. We had uh, our old podcast friend, Tom Frenzy, taking over at AMO. Uh, That was announced the week of J.P. Morgan, and uh, that certainly was an interesting development. Congratulations to Tom. We also last week had Alcon and Novartis announce some changes. Uh, Jeff George no longer will lead that group. Uh, and we now be led by a, a fellow named Mike Ball, who uh, I do not know, but hear very good things about. So, uh, so change is in the air, and we'll address that a little more specifically in next week's podcast. This week, I'm talking with David Muller. Uh, David is, uh, is a uh, frequent guest of the podcast. He's been on here a few times to tell the tale of Avidro and also uh, to uh, give us an update on uh, the company's dealings with the FDA. Uh, David, of course, has been at OIS the past couple of years, uh, giving all of you updates as well. And David is, uh, has now moved on. Uh, he will not be uh, telling the, the final tale of uh, Vidro's work with the FDA to get cross-linking approved. Uh, David has uh, started a new venture called Alatex. So in this conversation with David, We'll uh, get into what he's up to, and we'll also talk about the decision behind uh, leaving Avidro. So we hope you enjoy this conversation with David Muller. Hi, Dave. Welcome to the uh, podcast. Thanks, Sam. Nice to be here. Right. Uh, yeah, I was uh, wasn't sure how to introduce you. Uh, former CEO of Avidro, which is how most of our uh, OIS community knows you. But uh, I think we're going with serial entrepreneur, entre- serial entrepreneur now, which is certainly uh, an apt description. Uh, one, good to make. Yeah. So I want to talk about the the change of Avidro. We've we've seen you up on stage many times. It's not going to be OIS without you up there telling the story. But uh, I'm sure we'll get by. But uh, why the uh, why the change uh, from Avidro now? Why uh, why move on to this new venture? And we'll get into the new venture in a few minutes. Sure. Well, I think you know as uh, we discussed, I think you know, the, the conversation or the idea of be moving out actually came up in discussions with Gil. You know, you know, well, you know, very early on in, in the uh, in the discussions about uh, NOS funding the company, and it, it really came up in the context of. You know, okay. You know, you've you've been here for eight years, and we kind of look at you know looking ahead to what you know the next phase of the business was, which is really um, you know building towards either going public or some other liquidity event. And that you know what it what it clearly means is uh, you know another you know, I would say you know minimum of three years, you know three or four year commitment, which is 
you know, build the company, get ready to take it public, and then be prepared to remain in that seat for another couple of years to, you know, for stabilizing the public company and the markets. And we just started discussing it. You know, it came up in the context of, you know, is this what you, is this what you want to do? And is it the right thing for the company? And I guess, um, you know, I kind of looked at it where, you know, where I was with the company, I, you know, I brought the cross-linking through to really, I mean, we're on the verge of FDA approval. So it was, all the work was done to get FDA approval. I developed a pixel platform and the be able to treat myopia with the cross-linking. And then in the meantime, you know, I, being a serial entrepreneur, I had other irons in the fire that had been cooking for a while. And it really started to make sense that, uh, you know, really did it make sense for me to uh, stay on through a, a really a whole new phase of the company. And, uh, you know, I think the, uh, you know, so really as we, as we were put the, putting the deal together, it was really baked into the deal that I would be leaving, you know, sometime after the, uh, after the uh, funding closed. The actual, you know, the actual timing of it, you know, that was really driven by, um, you know, Gil and new investors. I think, you know, it was left up to them to say, okay, let's close the deal. And, you know, when do you think you'd like to make the transition? And mm-hmm. so I think, you know, probably the things that were played into the, into the decision-making was, you know, I had taken the company to, we really were sort of a bright line, really. The FDA stuff was done, and now we were starting to build a new strategy for, uh, for the pixel process. And since we knew we were bringing in a new CEO, you know, did it make sense for me to start developing a strategy when somebody else is going to have to inherit that and develop it on their own? So, you know, just, you know, more positive for the next person coming in to give them their own headroom to develop the company as, as they see fit. And from my perspective, the other thing that was pulling on me was, uh, you know, having some other things that, you know, I wanted to get started. And did it make sense for me to hang around for extra, you know, some number of months when you got started when, you know, the serial entrepreneur itchy feet and you wanted to get going. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, again, so ultimately, you know, the, the timing was, uh, you know, the ultimate timing was certainly, um, you know, driven by Gil at all. But I think the overall, uh, you know, time for David to leave was you know, really a mutual decision. And what is that process like? I mean, you've just kind of gone through like a whole litany of thoughts in this process. <laughs> you know, is the first reaction like, what the heck are you talking about me leaving? Or is it like, oh, God, that sounds really great? <laughs> Well, it's actually funny you say that because it's a, uh, the first reaction was, it was more like, huh, I hadn't really thought about that. <laughs> you know, that we, so, but I mean, it was really, it was really one discussion, you know, when I'm, you know, sitting there and sitting and then sitting on the couch, you know, you know ch- chatting with Gil and I think really within the course of 15, 20 minutes, but, you know, I hadn't really thought about that because that really makes sense. I think, you know, the, uh, um, so I, I think it was it, it, it was one of those things where you know you, I, as an entrepreneur you're running business you don't normally think about like I'm going to be leaving my baby so to speak but then when we started having that discussion it just started seeming sensible. So. Was there part of you that you know we I referenced your appearances at OIS and and you've you've sort of had to had a to be continued element of your presentation uh, regarding the cross linking and, and the FDA was there a part of you that wanted to give the the final the final end to put the period on that story or are you, are you kind of yeah, done, done with yeah. that one altogether? No, I mean, of course I think it's a, uh, you know, it would, it would have been nice to, you know, to be the one to get up there and say, okay, we've got it. But I don't think there's, um, you know, any question in anybody's mind about who did it. So I think, you know, I think I could, I can, 
you know, I can relax and rest on the knowledge that, uh, you know, I know what I did. Um, you know, I did the last LAS it felt to me, you know, you know, that, that, that was my, I felt that that was my swan song, that I was, uh, you know, I, I got it to where, where it needed to be. And, uh, you know, that was the end of it. Um, so yeah, of course there's a little bit that pulls out, you say, it would have been nice, but on the other hand, you, you know, that, uh, you know, I've got a lot of excitement about what's going on in life other than that. So, you know, Makes up for it. What was the? Uh, can you sum up the the whole Avidro experience? I mean, you came on board. Uh, the company had, a, I guess, a slow start. You uh, you helped turn it around. You helped develop Pixel, which is a, an exciting uh, vision correcting technology. What, what's your summation of your? Uh, I guess your eight years there. Well, I have to say, it was the, the kind of look back at it, it was very similar to, uh, I guess, the summit experience, and that you know the one. When we started uh, started Avidro, uh, we started it. It was originally started to use microwave technology to um, use uh, to treat nearsighted people. And uh, you know, at Summit, Summit was started to do laser angioplasty to treat hearts. And as an entrepreneur, you sort of fleet, you know, you have to be a little sort of fleet on your feet, and you kind of follow the technology. And so, you know, in a very similar way, Avidro, as we started with microwave stuff. That brought me over to the cross-linking, and uh, as has sort of a natural move from cross-linking away from the microwave because it was clear the microwaves weren't doing what we wanted. So it was uh, it was a very interesting, you know, exciting journey. I mean, it was uh, there was a lot of like with any startup, a lot of missionary work and a lot of convincing people that what you're saying and doing really is true. But it was uh, it was overall it was. Overall, it was a very good experience. Intellectual, intellectual uh, stimulation, working with a lot of good people. So, you know, I have no, you know, I have no uh, complaints at all about the whole video experience. It was, it was difficult, but that's you know, that's that's the nature of the uh, nature of startups. I'm going to take a quick break in this conversation with David to remind you to go to ois.net for all of our cool content and also to register for OIS at ASCRS. On May 5th in New Orleans, you can also, if you've got a great story to tell, your company has a great story to tell, you can apply to present at OIS. Go to OIS.net and you'll find all the information you need. Now back to this conversation. Well, let's uh, let's take a few minutes and uh, let's move into the, your next chapter in life. Uh, you, sure. you you had an idea, uh, a kernel of an idea, you were kicking around and starting to work on things, and now it's uh, now it's got a name. It's it's Alatex, right? Alatex, yes. Yep. What? It was uh, it was an idea that I got actually got maybe a couple of years ago. It was one of those you know sort of things that sort of popped into my brain, and so I had actually spent the past couple of years, you know, in my spare time, as it were, uh, developing intellectual property and uh, business strategies and the like, and trying to understand the market space a little bit more. And what Alatex is doing is it's addressing the, uh, it's, a, it's another, I guess I'd call it another player, and I guess what really is generically now called the, the inlay space, the space that currently occupied by, currently occupied by AccuFocus, uh, uh, Revision Optics, uh, and Presbya. And uh, the, so but we come into the space with something a little bit different, and that is the, uh, we're bringing, I think we're bringing history forward, so to speak. So, uh, you've, again, you're familiar with the, the current players in the in the inlay space, mm-hmm. and virtually all 
all the inlay companies currently all suffer from one common malady, which is biocompatibility. And, you know, although over the years, the biocompatibility of products to, uh, with respect to being uh, happy to be in the cornea, uh, the products have gotten better and better, but they still are not 100% biocompatible. There's always some strange sequelae that goes on uh, with these putting artificial things inside a cornea. And so the idea that I got was really to resurrect uh, the, the work from, it really goes back as far as Baricare in, uh, in the 80s, of being able to use uh, human tissue for uh, doing inlays, and even more preferably than that, doing onlays. Uh, and it was something that was was tried with a lot of vigor in the early 80s, but it was unsuccessful because uh, of the really the, the inability to precisely shape precisely shape the tissue and get the clinical result you want. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, but over the past really you know 30 years, there's been you know a pile of evidence that shows you can safely and accurately put in put in or on uh, human donor tissue onto normal corneas and get get a safe effect and safe clear cornea, the effect that you want. And you know, even more recently, there's been an actual high level of interest in what's now been done, tissue addition technology, coming really from a lot of the work that uh, some of the clinical uh, work, clinical clinicians working with Zeiss have discovered, which is when they do the Zeiss smile procedure, they have been starting to take the foreign lenticles out that uh, the, that the procedure forms, and so and taking those what are myopic lenticles out and placing them into hyperopic patients, and getting nice clear corneas with uh, nice corrections, and so the light bulbs are starting to come on in a number of places about maybe we should be using human tissue to do this, and the the thing that really struck me when I started looking at it, when you look back at 30 years ago, you looked at all the publications between now and then, what generally was sort of missed, you know, the elephant in the room was that now 30 years later, we actually have very precise tools being excellent lasers and femtosecond lasers for actually reshaping tissue as precisely as we want. And we know routinely we can do that. LASIK does it millions of times a year. And then another sort of interesting uh, thing had evolved again over the past really the past several years was that uh, some of the eye banks had learned how to take corneal tissue and process it in a way so that it could be room temperature stable uh, in a package. So men instead of having to deal with fresh tissue all the time, now we can start dealing with really a preserved tissue that has all the properties of natural tissue but can be put in the shelf and stored and sit there. So that's basically, you know, fundamentally what where I realized the opportunity was, was to provide an inlay, which is 100% biocompatible and can, it's not only limited, not, not only is it 100% biocompatible, but it, it's, it strikes at two other places where the current techniques can't be used. One is simply being able to use it as an onlay, that is, without any cutting, mm-hmm. we can put these corneal tissue right on Bowman's membrane with the epithelium put back over it. And secondarily, the, the, all, the other, the, all the other materials are limited in their dimensions so that 
you, you can't use a five or six millimeter hydrogel button because if you try to do that, the nutrition and from the from the anterior, from the posterior uh, cornea could not move to the front of the eye, and you end up getting corneal melt. But with natural tissue, I can make the reticules any size that I want. And so by doing so, you can imagine, for instance, there's a lot of interest in using this technique to treat hyperopia. Because as you know, with LASIK hyperopia, lots and lots of regression, not very accurate. It's not really a great procedure. But instead of doing it by removing tissue, if you did it by cutting a flap and adding tissue by adding a lenticule, then all of a sudden you're not you're not subject to the same sort of you know, re, um, reorganization, uh, reformation of the corneas we're subject to by removing the tissue. So it, it's it, I believe that this that the Altex product will be will, the optical performance will be as good or better than the current uh, offerings. But beyond that, it's a much more versatile offering, and that it can be used for a lot more things. And the uh, and the fact that it is 100% biocompatible because it's, it is corneal. So, well, does the, a little long-winded. Sorry about that. No, that's fine. Does does the biocompatibility, <clears throat> excuse me, make the regulatory burden uh, higher or or lower? Well, it's an interesting uh, it's an interesting uh, conundrum. Uh, I think that the uh, the Basically, the, the corneal tissue is not treated as a. Uh, it's corneal tissue is, is regulated under what's called the HTCP guide, guidelines, so that the. Um, uh, so, like for instance, in Europe, we, there isn't there isn't even a CE mark required because it's it's human tissue, hmm. and that they're used to putting it in in that fashion. In uh, in the U.S. Uh, there is a, there if the tissue is sold as if it's if the tissue is provided as a um, with a prescription you know you, you want a minus two or a minus three then those are those, that will be regulated under uh, um, as as a PMA but the tissue can also the doctors can also take tissue and reshape it and reform it any way they want. So there's sort of two different pathways of uh, two two different pathways of approval in the U.S. and we're working through the strategy right now. Of, you know the best way to move it forward. Well, you you do like working with the FDA, don't you? <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, you know, it's, it's I, I think I guess what time shows is that if you're patient and you wait long <laughs> enough, you end up getting through. It's just. Uh, you know, it doesn't work, but sometimes it can be a bit painful. No, I guess it's easier than, but, the, the, than the cheese farm you started last time after Summit, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I, I decided not to go to cheese this time. I'm sticking with ophthalmology. <laughs> um, what, starting a company today in this environment, how is it different than it was uh, eight years ago when you were working with Avidro or when you've done it in the past? What, what, uh, what lessons are you learning today? Well, uh, you know, it's hard to know. I mean, until I, you know, I haven't started really pounding the pavement for, you know, raising capital for it. I think that, you know, what I've seen, you know, over all the years of entrepreneuring that, you know, the, the ability to raise capital is sort of cyclical. Sometimes it's easier, sometimes it's, sometimes it's harder. So I don't know, you know, I don't know what it's going to be like at the moment going out there and starting to pound the pavement. But I think, you know, I mean, ultimately that's really, 
that's really the only difference. I think, you know, the, the clearly, you know, FDA has gotten tougher over the years and, um, even, you know, Europe getting the CE mark has gotten tougher over the years, but I think you, that just comes with the territory. Mm-hmm. You know, the, uh, it's the blessing and the curse because it does form that barrier to entry for, for other competitors coming in. You know, I think, you know, if you look at, uh, if you look at the Vidro and cross-linking, the, the biggest barrier that kept everybody out, you know, over the past four or five years was certainly not technology. It was people watching how hard a time we were having getting through the FDA. Mm-hmm. And, you know, nobody else was willing to bite the bullet, and, you know, pony up the money for that. And what does this company ultimately become? Is it a, is it a larger standalone company, or do you see this as something that's quickly acquired by a, a player out there already? Uh, you know, I don't know. I don't, I don't really have the answer to that. I think that it's uh, that it very likely could be, you know, part of the, uh, the domino cascade that often happens in technologies like this. You know, if you look, if you look at what happened early eczema lasers, look what happened with femtosecond lasers for uh, cutting flaps. Look what happened with femtosecond lasers for doing cataract surgery. I think that you know each each of those, including these these on on laser inlays, are clearly big ophthalmic opportunities and. Uh, ultimately, they belong in the hands of the major players. It's the question of, you know, when the when the dam breaks, and and it's they they the large companies decide that they want to be in. Terrific. Well, it's a, it's great to have a, a new story for you to tell. I'm sure we'll see you up on the stage at an OIS in the uh, in the very near future with uh, a whole different set I of PowerPoint so. slides. <laughs> yeah, I expect so. <laughs> thanks for the time, David. All right. Thanks a lot, Tom. Bye bye. David Muller, thanks again for joining us on the OIS podcast. I think this marks your fourth visit to the podcast, which may be a league record. So uh, keep making the news, and we'll keep having you on. Good luck with Alatex, and of course, thank you all for returning to the OIS podcast. We apologize for the brief hiatus, but I'm telling you it'll be totally worth it. And of course, go to OIS.net to register or to fill out an application to tell your company's story there. And we'll see you in New Orleans.